American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Episode 60. Is it? Woohoo. Oh, maybe not. Yes. Yes, it is. Episode 60 of American Timelines. That's 60 episodes. That's over 60 hours of inane bullshit that you idiots listen to. <laughs> you idiots, it's a joke on you, the listener. We fooled you. Why are you listening to this podcast? You're you've made a mistake. What okay. are you doing with your lives that you're listening to us idiots? All right, I'm Amy. <laughs> and I'm Joe. I hold the record for most applesauce. Most applesauce what? Eaten? No, that's for everyone to figure out. Most oh. applesauce something. W- worn? Maybe. Um, Maybe hoarded. Yeah. Or uh, slept in. <laughs> Or sniffed? Bathed in. Or what about longed for? Well, most applesauce longed for. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, I long for it. Every time I see someone with applesauce and I don't have the applesauce, I long for it. It makes sense. So when our son got braces and all I ate was applesauce for six months, I I wanted some of his applesauce every single time. That's a lot of applesauce longing. It's true. So I hold that record. You might be right. And, this and I'm is, Joe. This is the podcast that brings you all of the crazy, nostalgic, and interesting things that have happened in the years in the past. That's and right. We, do we talk it, about everything. We crazy. do it year by year. Weird things. We talk about music and history and um, terrible things, sad things, awful, awful things that just make you sad. Yep. And we're a happy, happily married couple uh, renewing our vows every episode. All right, and tonight we're going to talk about 1960. Yes, this is the second episode of 1960. We left off in February. We didn't get very far. No, we did not. In the last episode. Um, I blame you for well, running on, but we're we're right here. We're going to continue on. Let's just jump right into it sure. before too many people get so mad and they stop listening. We're Wednesday, February 10th. That's where we were. Yes. We only got it to the 10th of February. Jeez. Uh, do you, do you, Jack Parr, remember him? Yeah. Jack Parr temporarily quit his television program on Wednesday, February 10th in the United States because his monologue had been edited the night before Oh. in favor of a three-minute news update. Parr walks out to the audience at the beginning of the show, announces that he is quitting. Says huh. He says, there's got to be a better way to make a living, and then walks off the stage. And so he was mad about what? That they edited... They, they edited his his uh, monologue. He had so, that, a monologue. so that they could have a commercial break? No, they put a three-minute news update in it instead. Oh. And he was like, fuck this. It, so he quit. But after network executives apologized mm-hmm. personally, he mm-hmm. resumed hosting the program. A month later, he came back. Oh, kind of a diva. And his first show back started with the words, as I was saying before I was interrupted. Oh, yeah, clever. Like, you don't fuck with Jack Parr. Mm. No, I guess not. 
If for those that don't know, he was like a Johnny Carson type, yeah, right? Yeah, he was like the Tonight Show. I think he hosted the Tonight Show before, jo- before Johnny Steve or Allen. Oh, that you know all that stuff, don't you? I think, ah, oh, man, I don't know it as well as I probably should. Yeah, you should, and we're all very disappointed that you don't. Well, I've hesitated to learn anything before Steve Allen because uh, everybody's racist. True. And so I'm like, you know what? Do we even want to give the racists any yeah. credit? Yeah, that's true. Okay, what's next? And then on February 12th, it was a Monday? Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. February 22nd. I no, nobody gives on. a shit what day of the week it is. Yes, they do! Monday, February 22nd, we have a brand new song on the billboard Are you all right? Charts. What's happening? Oh, I'm being attacked by lizards. Gosh, you sound like you're... No, it's not that I'm just bending over. You've got some uh, diverticulitis reaching. going on over there or something. I do. I ate... All I ate was peanuts today. <laughs> I had three meals filled with peanuts. Shout out Rich Helland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a friend named Rich, friend of the show. He was... You may remember him as uh, Dr. Uh, what was his character? Can't remember. The first, first season we had him on, um, Dr. Clyde, uh, man, Wolf Hammerstein. That's if you remember right. that from the first season. Uh, he, he was an actor named Rich Helen. Anyway, he has diverticulitis, <laughs> which um, if you look it up, it's basically <laughs> fecal pockets. And we thought that was hilarious that he's got fecal pockets. Yeah. Now, it's terrible. Like, apparently, yeah. it's a painful, awful thing that he's had to go through. But it's really entertaining for us. Because uh, it has to do with that part of the body. Yeah, we call them fecal pockets. So he couldn't eat peanuts and everything for a while. But I eat his his, his portion share of peanuts. Peanuts and popcorn. Yeah, I had like three meals today of all just peanuts, just nuts. Trail mixes. Like, I have so many nuts, and, you know, it's... Nobody gives a shit what you ate today, much. honey. Well, that's why I'm like... You're like a, you're like a verbal Facebook page. <laughs> I am a verbal Facebook page. You just... The stupid shit that we scroll through when we listen to you. All right, we got a new number one song on February 22nd, 1960. This is a song by Percy Faith. This is... Oh, yeah. You know what this is called? This is an instrumental, isn't it? I think it is. Turn it down just a touch. Okay. This reminds me of... Oh, here we go. There's an X-Files episode. Oh, Jesus. And I don't... It might not even be this song, but the, it's like the creepiest X-Files episode ever. Yeah. And it's about this inbred family. Is that when the, 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 the mom or who yeah, was, was under the yeah, bed? Yeah, yeah, And at the end, they have this old-fashioned car, and they turn on the radio, and it's some song oh, like this like that this. plays. That's the only episode of X Files I've ever seen, and it was good, wasn't it? It was my first and last episode of X Files. <laughs> Amy was like, "Hey, watch this show with me. It's called X Files, and it was an inbred family that like pulled the mom on a cart. They pulled her. Oh, she was under, under the, the bed. bed. She they didn't have arms or legs. The, she didn't have arms or legs, and they just, like pulled her out, and she was just a torso and a head, and they like fucked her, and then like put her back under the bed, and then played the song, and I was like. I don't think I want to watch this show. <laughs> that was a rough one to indoctrinate somebody into the X Files with. And I guess Amy's obsessed with David Duchovny again. Here we go. This is a, <laughs> a theme from a summer place. It's a song. Oh, it has lyrics. Oh, it does. Oh, but this was. It has lyrics originally. Oh. For the 1959 film A Summer Place, starring Sandra D and Troy Donahue. Oh. But as it was recorded for the film as an instrumental by Hugo Winterhalter. It was originally known as the Molly and Johnny theme. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Percy Faith recorded the most popular version of this theme, this instrumental version, uh, at the Columbia 30th Street Studio in New York City. This is so 60s. The single was not an an immediate hit and did not enter Billboard Hot 100 single charts until mid-January of 1960, even though it was released in September of 1959. Yeah, it sounds like 50s. Yep. It went on to set an all-time record for nine consecutive weeks at number one. Oh, which, did it? Yeah, which would not be broken until... Sorry, I had a pause. Damn it. No. It would not be out. broken until... Yeah. Which would not be broken until 1977, when You Light Up My Life spent ten weeks at Debbie Boone. Yeah. Taking anyway, it out. Back to the 60s. On Monday, February 29th... The whole week later after that song mm-hmm. came number one. We're jumping a week. We're making some progress. Yeah. The the first Playboy Club was opened. Oh, really? Are you familiar with what the Playboy Club is? I'm pretty. I mean, sort of. Yeah. I don't. I'm, I've never been there. You haven't? No. But um, yeah, I do. I've seen pictures of the Playboy bunnies and and. So my biggest question when I looked it up was: Are they naked? Like, is it a strip club? Like, are they? Topless? I don't think so. Right. I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. Oh, I thought you said you looked it up. I did. Oh. The Playboy Club Club was initially a chain of nightclubs and resorts owned and operated by Playboy Enterprises. The first one opened at 116 East Walton Street in downtown Chicago. On February 29, 1960, each club generally featured a living room, a Playmate bar, a dining room, and a club room. Members and their guests were served food and drinks by Playboy Bunnies some of whom were featured in Playboy magazines. Yeah. The club offered name entertainers and comedians in the club rooms and local musicians and the occasional close-up magician in the living rooms. Starting with the London and Jamaica club locations, the Playboy Club became international in scope. That's all I found out. I don't think I think there was probably a lot of hand jobs, but I don't think they were like topless. No, it's not a strip club. It's a club. It's like a gentleman's. But actual Playboy models that were naked in the magazine were there. So the Playboy bunnies. So you know, there's a lot of coke and like. Oh yeah! Oh sure. Backroom sex and like. Yeah, you're probably right. I recently watched Motley Crue, The Dirt. Yes. And there's a lot of scarring. Every time they have any meetings, it's in the Playboy type club. Where they're they're all sitting around a booth at mm-hmm. a table in this restaurant, and they're all getting BJ's. It's so while weird. They're talking with each other. So, yeah. so I assume that's what the Playboy Club was like. Maybe not. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think the Playboy magazine was a little misogynistic. Just a touch. A little bit. Just a <laughs> yeah. touch. Even if you just I mean look for at the, the, articles. Car- the cartoons on- alone, I you would be like. Ar- the articles. Yes. Hustler magazine, however, is fine. High class. Tuesday, March 1st, 1960. Yes. Uh, R&B singer Art Lasseter became the new frontman for the Kings of Rhythm. Mm-hmm. And also hired Lasseter's background vocalist, a girl group named the Artettes. Okay. Okay. Um, Ike Turner had written a song for Lasseter and the Artettes titled A Fool in Love. Oh. On the day Lasseter was to show up to Techno Sound Studios in St. Louis to record his vocal, the singer was a no-show. Having already booked expensive studio time, Ike allowed 20-year-old Anna Mae Bullock, Tina Turner, still going by Little Ann, to record the song as a dummy track for Lasseter. 
After recording Bullock and the Artettes, Ike sent the song to a, Saint, to a St. Louis radio DJ who was so impressed by the song that he convinced Ike to send the record to Juggy Murray, the president of the New York-based R&B label Sue Records. Mm-hmm. Murray was impressed by Bullock's vocal delivery on the song, calling it raw and funky, and that it sounded like raw dirt. Murray bought the rights to the song and gave Ike a $20,000 advance. Wow. Convincing Ike to not erase Bullock's vocals and make her the star. Prior to this move and the recording of A Fool in Love, Ike had conversations with Bullock about singers in his band that would leave his group only to find bigger success elsewhere. Bullock said she convinced Ike that if they ever had a hit together that she wouldn't leave him if they became successful. Mm. Paranoid that Bullock could leave him for a solo career, Ike changed her stage name from Little Ann to Tina Turner. Now, what's the song? A Fool in Love or something? A Fool in Love. Won't somebody please, please tell me what's wrong. She's so good. Tina Turner's like amazing, the badassest woman ever. Yeah. Okay, that's probably good. Right? I think Tina Turner should be president. She, if you, did you ever see the movie "What's Love Got to Do with It"? That movie about uh, her. Maybe. In the end, when she fights back and she tries, uh, she beats no, the, beats the no. shit out of Mike. No, I haven't. But do you think that's true, or they just added that for the movie? No, I think she did. I think at the end she did. And she she became a Buddhist and stuff. Well, see with Tina Turner, you know, again, like we are, we are young people. Well, we're old now, but we're getting old. But you know, I grew up with the eighties Tina. Turner, yeah, not which yeah. was just like a a badass older lady. Yeah, right. But when you look back, like she was a f- sweet looking. Yeah, she beautiful, was beautiful, but also tough. She mm-hmm. was gritty and tough. And then you find out that she was getting her ass beat by Ike all that time. Mm-hmm. I hope, I hope that she beat his ass at the end. I know, me too. Me too. That would be... It was be, it Mad Max or something she was in? Yeah. Like she was like... Anyway, yeah. Anyway, that was the start of Tina Turner. Okay. That's, that's the cool that's shit. Like, cool. we're going to come across cool, yeah. like, the starts of everybody mm-hmm. who was great. Tina Turner's a great... She is. Ever. And Ike and Tina Turner. I'll listen to Ike and Tina Turner music all day long. Yeah, that's good. I like it's it too. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Wednesday, March 2nd, 1960, mm-hmm. Lucille Ball files for divorce from Desi Arnaz, oh. ending their 20-year Boom. marriage and the I Love Lucy franchise on CBS. Boom. Boom. Fuck Desi. Yeah. I think he was, like, speaking of abuse. Oh, really? He was abusive too, right? I've never heard that. You haven't? Mm-mm. Are you sure? I've never. I'm sure I've never heard that. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's all out of left field. Or was he just cheating on her? Well, now you got to look that up. God damn it! Okay, hold on. Was Desi Arnaz abusive? <laughs> you got to cut this part out. Yeah, Here's well. some information for: Did Desi Arnaz abuse Lucille Ball? 
According to Wikipedia, Arnez and Lucille Ball were married on November 30, 1940. Their marriage was turbulent. Convinced that Arnez was being unfaithful to her and also because he came home drunk several times, Ball filed for divorce in September 1944 but returned to him before the interlocutory decree became final. The interlocutory decree became final. <laughs> so that didn't answer the question at all. It was kind of vague. Just that it was term turbulent. So, yeah, it's probably vague. So, okay, I could be wrong. Maybe he did. I just assume everybody yeah. beat everybody back then. Oh, and then here we go. Friday, March 11th, 1960. Friend of the show. Yeah. Mentioned in every episode. Chuck Berry is sentenced to jail. <laughs> he was? A sentence to jail. Friday, March 11th, 1960, because, according to Heavy.com... Yeah. What, what, what is your date? 14th. 14th. According to Heavy.com, on December 23rd, 1959, Chuck Berry was arrested in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. Where Amy's... Where I'm from. From, where she was born and raised, charged with violating the Mann Act. M-A-N-N. This is a federal law which makes it illegal to engage in the transportation of an individual for prostitution or debauchery. Or for any other immoral purpose. Okay, what did he do? Uh, it was intended to crack down on human trafficking and prostitution. Uh, but, uh, so here's the story. Like, he claims he was innocent. While performing on the road, Chuck Berry had met a 14-year-old waitress, Janice Noreen Escalante. Mm -hmm. And he invited her to come work at his nightclub in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. However, she was fired from the club after only a few weeks. Chuck Berry said that he fired her because she came on to him at work. Mm -hmm. That's his story. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. According to the book. Like any. Yeah, right. That's the <laughs> I know. stupidest yeah. thing I've I ever Let's heard. Let's just say, if we're listening to Chuck Berry, who later was arrested for. Peeking in the women's room. While having video, right? Yeah, women, videotaping women, women in the pooping, bathroom. Uh, poop women poop videos according to his book american legends the life of chuck berry it didn't help berry's case that escalante had a background in prostitution and some first-hand accounts suggest that he was flirting with her on the road something that berry vehemently denied that's an autobiography or a biography biography oh, okay not long after she was fired, Escalante was arrested on charges of prostitution she told the police about her working situation with berry and this led to his arrest oh at the conclusion of the two-week trial, Barry was sentenced to five years in prison. He appealed, arguing that the judge was racist and biased against him, which in 1960 is Pro probably true. Probably true. The jury in the case also consisted entirely of... White people. White men. Yeah. White men. Wow. So in 1960, of course, yeah. you know, so I'm sure it wasn't fair. Right, exactly. But... Yeah. Eh. I'm just, I'm kind of unclear as to what exactly he did. He, he took her... Yeah, he brought her on the road or whatever, but he, so he... But she was how old? 14. So, so that's why... Was, it's basically human trafficking. Barry's appeal was successful. But in the second trial, he was convicted again, this time to three years in prison. He appealed a third time, and in the end, Barry spent a year and a half in prison. During this time, his club bandstand was closed down. Oh. Were you familiar with that? No. Club in St. Louis? Mm -mm. You weren't a frequenter in well, 1960? In, I wasn't alive in 1960, honey. Mm, that's debatable. In what? According to the New York Times, Bruce Pegg writes in the biography, Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Hard Times of Chuck Berry, the issue in the trials was one of Janice Escalante's age. But as with everything in Berry's life, there's always ambiguity mm. that he is as much a victim as a perpetrator. 
says that during the trial, every witness that got on the stand when they identified somebody, the judge would interrupt and say, was that a white man or a black man? And attempted to remind the jury at every turn that they needed to view the events through the lens of race. Really? Yeah. And I don't know how you could ever get Was through. she white? Oh, I, I don't know. I wonder if that's why. Well, for a while, Barry flatly denied that he even went to prison at all, saying in a 1972 interview... That's the misconceptions that people have. That He's Chuck crazy, Berry went to though. jail. They're just totally wrong. He says in third person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then later he admitted that he was in jail. So, um, Which is pu- probably public information. Yeah. Um, public record. But while he was behind bars, he remained musically active and wrote a, n- a number of songs that became hits like Promised Land. Don't know it. A song with lyrics describing a road trip across the U.S. This is all according to... Oh, that's going to see. Page numbers. Yeah. Page well, numbers. And staples would be good. Page numbers would be even better. Barry was released in prison in 1963, and he quickly resumed his career. Yeah, and he got famous again. Yeah. Which is weird that somebody would could make a comeback after all that, being well, in prison and stuff. I don't... But again, remember, we're in a world where nothing, like, things didn't go that viral. So how many people do you think well, but, did, didn't even hear but about that? Chuck Berry w- was a black man in 1960. To the fact that he, The fact that he regained his career after being in prison, which is kind of the stereotype yeah, that how, white people had. Yeah, but how many people do you think even heard that he went to prison? Like, you didn't have YouTube and TMZ reminding you every five seconds. Yeah, we have newspapers and stuff. Newspapers, but I'm sure they were like three years later, they probably forgot about that guy. Yeah. Oh, listen to this song. Oh, that's Chuck Berry. Oh, he's great. I don't know. Okay. Sunday, March 13th, 1960. Senator JFK. You know him? Yeah. James F. Kennedy. He was a senator. At this James time. F. Kennedy? Oh, John F. Kennedy. Sorry. <laughs> senator Kennedy. Jeez. Sorry. Senator... Night, Sunday, March 13, 1960. John F. Kennedy was a senator. Yes. And uh, he was a huge James Bond fan. Oh, he was. James Bond fan. And fan. Bond fan. James Bond fan. He first met the author of the series, Ian Fleming, at a dinner party in 1960. Oh. They allegedly bounced around ideas about how to get rid of Fidel Castro. Oh. And then we get to, that brings us to March 14th, 1960, and something tells me, a little birdie, a little gay birdie on my shoulder tells me that you have have a little something. A little something, I do. March 14th, 1960. Okay, it wasn't a gay bird. It was you told me earlier. Yes. So, on March 14th, 1960. Oh, the same day that the DuPont show with June Allison was on? Yes. And that... And this was like a show that it was just different variety show. No, it was a it was no it was a like films like short films. Oh, and every one was a different episode. It was like ninety oh. ninety minute show at ten thirty at night, and they were like action shows. But it was like it was like drama episodes. Oh. And they were all different actors every time. But the Dupont and June Allison introduced it, and she was in a lot of them. And then there was also the Alcoa Theater. Alcoa was like like aluminum foil oh, okay and that had shows that were mm-hmm. just named after a brand that's so how everything was DuPont, named after brands yeah, yeah that was cool and then there was 
the I don't pri- know about cool. That same night, Private Eye shows were on. Bourbon Street Beat and Peter Gunn were both Private Eye shows. Okay. Here are the Western shows on just that night. Yeah. Cheyenne, mm-hmm. Tales of Wells Fargo, and The Texan. There were three God. Western shows That to was watch. big in the 60s. Riverboat. There was a show called Riverboat. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay, this... Riverboat's basis is Gray Holden wins a riverboat in a poker game, which he then pilots along with his crew in various adventures along the Mississippi River. The action series is set in the 19th century, starring Darren McGavin, Dick Wessel, Jack Lambert, and Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds, a young Burt Reynolds, a 1960 version of Burt Reynolds. No mustache. Yeah, really. No uh, chewing gum and saying Turd Ferguson. But the same day as all those shows were on. Yes. So. On on this day, yeah, the bodies of three women from the Chicago suburbs were discovered in St. Louis Canyon, one of the many natural wonders at Starved Rock State Park near Uti- Utica, Illinois. Utica. Utica. I wonder where. That, so Chicago suburbs. Yes, they were from the Chicago suburbs. The three bodies were found in the same place. Mm-hmm. The three middle-aged women, Mildred Lindquist, Lillian Edding, and Frances <laughs> Murphy. Those. Oh, my God. This is crazy. Okay. We're, I know we're in 1960, yeah, I but know. I have a Grandma Mildred and a Grandma Francis. So there you go. Those are two of my grandmother's names. Yes. Great. Um, those are both great. No, no. One is a grandmother. One's a great-grandmother. Yes. Grandma Francis. So they had driven up. Grandma Millie. They had driven from their upscale home in Chicago suburbs for a four-day holiday at Starved Rock State Park. Well, good for them. They had been anxious for an outing together. Edding, who had spent the entire winter nursing her husband after a heart attack, was especially looking forward to several days of hiking, bird watching, and spending time outdoors. Okay, hold on. Now, you say nursing her husband. It doesn't mean she was breastfeeding. No, no. Okay. So there's other ways to say that. There's other ways of nursing her husband. But now you're saying to relax. She wants to go bird watching. I know. And but it's also in March in Illinois. It's not going to be warm. It's going to be chilly. And, and you know they have to wear dresses everywhere they go. So they Because oh, everybody wears dresses now. Mm-hmm. Like we're in the 60s. Yes. Women don't wear pants. Not really yet. And bird watching probably was a lot more popular because there wasn't much else. Not There's much TV. else. Yep. There is television, but... I don't you know, not 90% of people had TVs now, we know, yeah. but there was no other things. There was no internet. No internet. There was no YouTube. So There was no WWE network. No. So employees at the Parks Lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies. Oh. Frances Murphy had parked her gray station wagon in the inn's parking area, and she and her friends had unloaded their few pieces of luggage. Okay. They registered for the rooms. Dropped off their bags and then ate lunch in the dining room. Okay, I bet their luggage included hat boxes. Yes. Like old ladies always had yes. hat boxes. I bet it did. Probably a steamer trunk or the something. A steamer trunk in my hat box. Afterward, they remarked to one of the staff members it was a beautiful day for a hike and they left carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. No, so it must have been nice weather that day. Yep. So the women walked away wearing rubber galoshes as well. All right. Because it was probably muddy. Yeah, it was muddy and these older gals. The path was covered with a light snow. Yeah. And they trudged and slipped along, pausing occasionally to take pictures of one another. In their dresses. Yes. Taking selfies. Yes. So a lot of things haven't changed. Yes. So eventually they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon where steep rocky walls framed a majestic frozen waterfall. Okay. Sounds beautiful. The three women were only one mile from the lodge. 
Lillian Eddings struggled with the controls of her friend's camera and snapped several color slides at the canyon. I can't figure out your camera, this newfangled camera, this fancy new color camera. I can't figure it out. So when she was finished, the group turned to leave, and they walked into a horror that stunned the entire nation. But they're only a mile out. You think they're safe. You know. You think there's nothing going to happen to these poor ladies. So the, the first sign that something was wrong yeah was george edding was trying to call his wife at the lodge francis's husband uh lillian's husband he was lillian's husband george was trying to call yes and he was told by staff on duty at the desk that his wife wasn't available sorry she's not available so they thought the ladies had gone out somewhere and the staff member suggested she'd call in the morning so he wasn't concerned he went to bed yes because keep in mind folks i'm millennials listen up there were no text messages. There was no cell phones. There anymore. were no fax machines. You couldn't reach people at any yes. given moment. We didn't have their fancy fax machines, millennials. So on Tuesday morning, he called the lodge again. There's no Grubhub. You can't order a Taco Bell delivery. And again, asked to speak to his wife. The employee who answered mistakenly told the man that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at the time. So that was a lie. It was a mistake. We found out later that was a lie. Yeah. Or not a, maybe not a lie, maybe just a mistake. He, he saw three old bags and it was like, it's just those old women. Yeah. With pointy glasses. Yes. In the 60s. So, yeah. With so beehive hairdos. He was reassured and he, he ended the call. Oh, that's fine. She's fine. She's just having fun. She's probably mad at me about something I did too many times. So Truth. that night, a late winter storm hit the Illinois Valley. Okay. In St. Louis Canyon, several inches of snow covered up footprints, blood stains, and other vital pieces of information around three cold and still bodies. Oh, no. They're dead already? Yep. Wait, they're dead? Yep. The near oh, blizzard conditions alert. continued all night long, making the roads and park nearly impassable. Oh, you're never going to find them bodies. So George Edding telephoned the lodge again on Wednesday morning, but his telephoned. wife and her friends could still telephoned. not be located. Telephoned. Telephoned them. It's still not, at this point, he's got to get worried. Yeah. Because now he's so like, So he eh. starts to insist to the employees to go in the room. Yeah, let me talk to my fucking wife, bro. So they go in, and they find the beds and the bags were untouched. Oh, untouched. They'd never been slept in, even once. They never even stayed there. The hat box is still there. But then they looked at the parking lot, and the station wagon had not been moved. Okay. So, okay. um shocked the husband realizes his wife and her friends have now been missing for more than 40 hours oh shit and this is 1960 so as soon as he breaks off that call he calls the police who begin to organize search parties to look for the women he accompanied we gotta get a search party see so he he goes with them and they leave immediately for the park okay they're going right now because they're like whoa yo there's no youtube there's no grubhub there's no twitter we can't tweet about this. So this guy, Bill Danley, who's a local newspaper reporter. Bill Danley? Yeah. Okay. He, I like that name. He, was, um, he, he gets word about the disappearances, and he grabs his camera, and he goes out there. Let's go. Grab the... What are those giant cameras called? Grab the... I don't know. I feel like yeah. they call it by a brand name. Grab the Panavision or the Westinghouse. Grab the Westinghouse. That's what they would say. <laughs> it was worth it. Yeah, it All was right. worth it. <laughs> so when he reaches the park's entrance, he notices this boy running across an icy ravine toward the road. Okay. He drove to a small parking area and found several other young kids shouting that bodies had been found on one of the trails. Oh, man, it's on. So 
Danley recognized the boys as members of the nearby Illinois Youth Commission Forestry Camp, where he had once led an explorer post. So he pulls them aside, okay, and he questions them. All right. Hey, kids, come here. What do these bodies look like? So when they told him about the bodies, he called the lodge where law enforcement officials had gathered, and then he calls the newspaper to report the discovery. And in a matter of minutes, the story was on Cross, flashing across wires we got, in the country. There was dead yeah. bodies. We got to get this out there. So re- Stop the presses. Recovering the bodies of, from the depths of the canyon was a major undertaking in the snow. Really? Yes. Um, These animals? And Danley, the reporter. Bill Danley. Was, was among those who entered St. Louis Canyon and got the first look at the bodies. I'm Bill Danley. So the three... Um, mutilated women were lying side by side partially covered with snow they were on their backs under a small ledge now i'm starting to wonder what happened to these women their lower clothing had been torn away and their legs were spread open oh even each of them had been beaten viciously about the head and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine wait a second they were beaten about okay they're ripped their clothes are ripped off from the pants down yes legs spread yeah but they're twined together? No, they're they're just tied up. They're tied up to just say that last Two bit of again. the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. They were tied together. Yeah. Two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. Yeah. Okay. They were covered Please. with blood and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. Oh. So poor ladies. They're just ladies. I know, they're just sixties ladies named Frances and Millie. And so this, the police detectives soon arrive and begin a search. Yeah. Except for the floor of the overhang where the bodies were found, the entire canyon was covered nearly six inches of snow at this point. Okay. The, um, they had to be really careful removing the snow because... It, they didn't want to mess they, with a crime scene. Right. And as they did, signs of a violent struggle were revealed. Mrs. Murphy's camera was found about 10 feet from the victims. Its leather case was smeared with blood and its strap was broken. Huh. They also found the women's bloody binoculars. A short distance away, LaSalle County State's attorney Harland Warren stumbled across a frozen tree limb that was streaked with blood. Uh, Harlan Warren is an astute individual. And the snow beneath it was covered with blood, too, so they f- realized this must be the murder weapon. So this trail of... Wait, of what was in there? Murder it was a, a, a tree... A, a tree branch? Like a... Um, Log, more like. A log was a murder weapon? Mm-hmm. That's huh. what Ted Bundy used, remember? No, I don't when remember. When he went to the sorority house, he grabbed a log. I do. I actually don't remember that. Oh, okay. Maybe because I'm trying to avoid getting PTSD from, from this listening podcast. to these stories. Yes. <laughs> Your yes. PTSD. You're trying to actively give me PTSD, and I'm trying to avoid it. That's probably true. I shut off. I go in a different mode. I drink Hop Slam, and that's who I am. So the bodies remained in place for hours until pathologists and state crime lab officials could arrive. Yeah. And um, they finally took the victims out. They were taken to uh, a funeral home where they were examined and autopsied. Poor ladies. They had obviously been molested, but the cold and limitations of medical techniques at the time failed to find any evidence of rape. Oh, good. Because I I honestly didn't think there was rape in the 60s. Well, I'm, I'm hoping for no rape. Let's go. Uh, I'm pretty sure there is going to no be rape. rape in no, the let's go. Let's go in no rape season. A rape free season. We can advertise that. Rape Listen to American season. timelines now. Rape free. <laughs> 
The doctors were able to determine the time of death, placing it shortly after they had enjoyed lunch at the lodge where they were seen. Shortly after they enjoyed their lunch. crab chowder. Yep. No motive was suggested for the murders, but robbery was dismissed because the women had left their money and jewelry behind in their rooms when they went for the afternoon hike, so they didn't have anything of value. See, I'm still hoping, every time you start a story, I just like hope, I'm hoping for aliens. There's no aliens and in this one. And this one's just a murder and rape. Yeah, I know. God. So the investigation, almost from the start, went nowhere. Wait, this is not a rape, right? Just a molestation? Molest. So molest. We're, so we're still rape-free, right? Because right last now. episode. Yeah, last episode was the Coors guy. So. And that guy didn't get raped, no, right? No, So, so far, yeah. American Timelines is rape-free in season four. That's true. All right. Season four, now less rape. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're rape-free right now. We're rape-free now, and then once the first one is, it's still less rape. Less rape. Because season three was a lot of rape. It was, was real rapey. Seventies was, was real rapey. It was a rapey season. It was a rapey decade. Season three, rape heavy. <laughs> season three, chock full of rape. <laughs> All right, no. That's a, why are we laughing about rape? I don't know. You're a terrible person. I'm a terrible person. All right. We're going to hell. So, as the investigation slowly moved forward, fear was starting to grip the area. Yeah, I would be feared. Because they used to fear. not lock their doors, and yeah, yeah, yeah. now they're locking their doors. And the I'm hardware, all about not locking doors. The I hardware stores doors. were running out of deadbolts, and sporting goods stores were running out of guns. Oh, yeah, sporting goods stores got guns, y'all. The number, the number of guests that spent the night at Starved Rock state park. I ain't going up there. That's where those ladies got well. molested and murdered. Yep. Where they're twined together with their vaginas out. And newspapers and radio broadcasters around the state widely reported the slow progress of the investigation. All because of Bill Dan Danley, wasn't it? Lee. Make All it? because of Bill Danley, the greatest broadcaster in American history. So the state's attorney, Harlan Warren, thought that to crack the case, he had to look at what the killer left behind, which was the twine. Yeah. So he purchased a microscope and began studying the twine and found there were actually two kinds of twine used. Two kinds of twine? I didn't... Who knew that there were two kinds of twine? That's right. So with the help of two deputies, they began to search for the source of the twine. They started at the Starved Rock Lodge. Gotta find a source of the twine, y'all, at the Starved Rock Lodge, y'all. In September 1960, Warren and his deputies met with the manager of the lodge's kitchen. September 1960? We're only in February. I know. Within minutes and without much difficulty, Warren found both kinds of twine used in the murder in the kitchen. Oh, it was in the kitchen of the lodge. It was the chef. They were each used for wrapping food, and um, they used lodge purchasing records to track down the twine's manufacturer. Oh, yeah. And it had, um, so the twine used to bind the murder victims had been taken from the supply in the lodge's kitchen. Oh, shit. We got a murder. So the killer either worked at or had access to the park's lodge. Oh, yeah. Faced with the fact that all the lodge employees had been given polygraph tests and had passed, Warren now had to wonder if the tests had been accurate. Oh, polygraphs are not accurate still to this day in 2019. So he decides it's time to run some of his own tests. You know what I heard? This is a side note. Side note, side note. We're now in a side note. I was listening to a crime uh, podcast, and they said a lot of police, like if they get a, a perpetrator... Perpetrate a perp? A perp who's real who's not real swift. Yeah. They they have a copy machine. Yeah. And they tell them it's a lie detector. And they um 
they have them put their hands on it and when they when they lie they print it out something that says lie on a piece of paper and they say look and then they show it to them <laughs> you lied that can't be true this, I, yeah it is <sighs> not too swift like how do you define not too swift it's, well there's probably a lot of criminals like that. I, you know i would fucking believe it if but i was at some criminal like a police station they told me this is a lie detector <laughs> I'd be like, machine. I, it looks just like my copy machine at work but i guess yep this has got toner in it all right so um so he's going to run his own test he hires a specialist from a prominent chicago firm yeah. Okay, this is his own test? Yes, like it's his own like he's test. he's making up the test? His own in lie detector. No, he's his own 19... lie detector test. Lie so detector. he recalls all the employees who had worked during the week of the murder. Come on back, y'all. One by one, they came back to this little cabin near the lodge, and, and again... And one of the people they brought back is just, like, shaking and nervous, and like he's, like, holding a giant knife, and he's, like, you know, yes. masturbating on his feces. Pretty much. The first dozen or so were quickly cleared. Okay. And they were wondering, maybe they're wasting their time, you know, this is... Until they see the guy in the corner who looks like a crazy person. So then, Bill Dummett, who is vaginas. one of the deputies, his name's Bill Dummett. Bill Dummett. Bill Dummett, y'all! It almost sounds like a curse. Bill Dummett. Yes. Bill I'm... Dummett! God, Bill Dummett. <laughs> Bill Dummett! <laughs> then, I would say his so, name all the time. So he brings in the former dishwasher named Chester Otto Weger. And Bill Dummett, get in here. Chesto Otto. Wait, Chesto Otto. Chester Otto Weger. Chester Otto Weger. Yes. Now that this obviously to me, mm-hmm. not to be a spoiler alert, but this must be the killer because you don't mention anybody's middle name unless they're the killer. How do you know? Well, you know John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Uh, John Wayne Gacy. John, who's the guy that killed JFK? Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald. Everybody's got three names. Yeah. When they killed somebody. That's because you don't want to ruin everybody else's life who has the same first and last name. Right. All right. So. And you had a friend named Austin Powers. When yeah, I did have a friend named Austin Powers. Yeah. He wasn't a friend. He was a kid I went to school with. He was a friend with benefits. No, he was not. All right. When Uyghur's polygraph test was complete. Yeah. Warren noticed the examiner's face had gone pale. The examiner's face had yes. gone pale when they were interviewing Weger. Oscar Weiger Weger. Yes. What's his Chester name? Otto Chester Otto Weger. Chester Otto Weger. You'll never remember it. Chester as soon as, Otto So as Weger. soon as he leaves the cabin. I really drank two hop slams. I shouldn't have drank in that yep. second. So as soon as he leaves the cabin, the technician ended all months and months of, of leads and wasted time. He turned to Warren and the deputies and he says, that's your man. Chester Otto uh, Weger. Weger. Boom, so, I did it. Weger, Weger was 21 years old. He yeah. was this slight little small man. He had a wife and two children. Oh, wife and two children and a small At guy. an age of 21. Okay. He had worked at the park until that summer when he resigned to go into business with his father as a house painter. Yeah, house so, painters are so stingy. So Dummett remembered the man's name from an Dummett. earlier police report, but he had never made much of an impression on the investigators. Warren intensified the investigation of the man, and strangely, Weger happily cooperated with them. Okay. He surrendered a piece of a buckskin jacket that he owned just so that some a suspicious... What skin? Buckskin. Oh, I so thought that, you said a buckskin. No, of a buckskin jacket. Okay. So that some sp- suspicious dark stains on it could be examined. Suspicious dark stains, y'all. It later turned out to be human blood. Oh. But in 1960, it couldn't be typed or matched to a specific victim. No, we didn't have that technology yet. 
So Warren also asked Weir to submit to further polygraph tests. And again, Weir agreed. He was given an entire series of tests and failed them all. Listen, Weir, we know these tests don't work, and we they pretend they don't mean anything, but you failed them. So once the jacket was determined to be stained with blood, yeah. Warren put the former dishwasher under constant surveillance by the state police. You know... That seems to degrade him a little bit. The former dishwasher. Like he's a lot of other things. He's a father and a murderer. He's a he's a he's a father. He's probably a brother, but he's also he's. But to you, he's just a former, former dishwasher. dishwasher. So um, they began checking into his. I've past. washed dishes. I'm a former dishwasher. So they they ch- start checking oh, into his, at his past, past. Okay, and then they also look into similar crimes in the area. Okay. Which might have escalated into murder. So he comes across a reported rape and robbery that took place about a mile from Starved Rock in 1959. So we're no longer rape free. No, we're not. Well, that was just a side little. That was a side rape. Okay, let's not talk about the rape. So, with Warren's approval, rape. He this the Dummett approaches the young female victim with a stack of mug shots. Okay. As she slowly sorts through, she began to scream when she came to the face of Chester Weger. Really? Yes. She screamed? Yeah. Oh, no. It was so, this guy. Al- although his evidence was not as strong as he would like, Warren obtained an arrest warrant against Weger for the 1959 rape so they could get him into custody yeah. and ordered Hessen Dummett to pick him up. So they, they pick him up, and um, he believes that when he saw the evidence mounting against him, Weger would confess to the crime and the Starved Rock murders. So they decide they, they have to make these careful plans about how to interrogate Weger before confronting him with the murders. How do you spell Weger? W-E-G-E-R. Uh, he looks like a, he's not a bad looking fella. Uh, well, there he is when he's older. I think oh, it's creepy three looking. Lady, oh, yeah. three ladies. They're grandmas. Yeah, they're grandmas. So a short time later, Hess and Dummett arrived at the young man's apartment and explained they had some more questions for him. Yeah. So they didn't make any mention of arrest warrants that were waiting okay. for him. Uh, once they had him in custody, the officers began to question him about the rape and also began to press him about the murders. They kept him in the interrogation room until past midnight. And then finally... And that was late in the 60s. Yes. When he was tired of questions, he was almost exhausted. He stopped in mid-sentence and asked to see his family. So a police car was dispatched to his parents' home in Oglesby, and his mother and father were brought to the courthouse. Okay. Dummett and Hess gave them a few minutes alone with their son. Oh, boy. In his official statement, which was taken the next day, Deputy Hess said, when Bill stepped out of the back room into the state's attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Weger to the door so they could go home, I could see something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester, why don't you tell me about it? There are just the two of us here. Just tell me about it. He said, all right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought, and I hit them. The pocketbook that Weger claimed he tried to take was actually the camera. He thought it was a Oh, and he wasn't going to get nothing anyway. So um, minutes later, the confession was transcribed and signed by Weger. During the confession, when when he was asked why he dragged the bodies under the overhang, Weger said that he had spotted a small airplane flying low over the park. And he said he was afraid that it was a state police, so he moved the bodies so that uh, he, they couldn't be seen from above. Uh, he's a smart guy. So a few days later, the flight over the park was confirmed by the pilot's testimony in the logbook, so they really? knew that he was telling the truth. Whoa. Weger confessed several more times to the murders over the next few days and even reenacted the killings for a crowd of policemen and reporters at the canyon. Anybody address the molestation that happened? 
nobody yeah nobody did then suddenly after his first meeting with his court appointed attorney Uyghur changed his story and stated he was innocent of all oh. charges he claims that the police coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun oh he had lied in his confession but he'd been so scared that he signed the papers anyway Uyghur also said that Dummett had fed him the information about the airplane the name he, is Dummett he claimed to be an Oglesby at the time of the killings he was brought to trial. Yeah. Jury selection took almost two weeks. Okay. The trial began on January 20th, 1961. Oh, the same day, the same day that Harrigan and Son was on, the Flintstones were on, 77 Sunset Strip, the detective starring Robert Taylor and the Law and Mrs. Jones was on, the same day that on Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. there was an episode called The Whole Truth. Mm-hmm. A used car salesman buys a car that dooms him to tell only the truth. Oh, that's funny. Same day that that happened? Yes. That was the trial. Okay. Um, they decided to try him for only one of the murders okay. in case in case something happened and he got off on a technicality. Then they could still go after him for the oh, other for the murders. the other ones, yeah. Um, they sought the death penalty. Okay. On March 4th, almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for Chester Weaker. Okay. On the day of his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. After the judge dismissed the jurors, reporters asked them if they knew that a life sentence in Illinois meant that Uyghur would be eligible for parole in a few years, and most of the jurors were shocked. They didn't have any idea about that. They had no idea. Some of them even said that if they had known that Uyghur was not really being sent away for the rest of his life, they would have voted for the electric chair. Yeah, man. Electrocute that motherfucker. So, Chester Weger was incarcerated at Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet. Joliet. Remains in prison today at the Illinois River Correctional Center in Canton. Wait, today in 2019? Yes. This Weger is 1960. Yep. He's been denied parole two dozen times since 1972. And um, there are, though, questions in the minds of some people about the case that remains unanswered. Many feel the evidence that was used to convict Uyghur would not stand up in court today. This is almost 50 years ago. I know. His prosecution largely turned out to be based on his confession, which predated Miranda warnings that are required today. So they, they didn't oh, do... 60 years ago. They didn't do, you have the right to remain silent and all that. They didn't do all that stuff in the neck in 1960? No. You're telling me this dude's still alive? Mm-hmm. He's got to be 890. Yeah, he's, he's up there. Others question how a small, slight man with Uyghur could have overpowered the three middle-aged women and then moved their bodies by himself to leave them hidden under the rock overhang. Adrenaline. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Others who believe in Uyghur's innocence point to a deathbed confession that allegedly occurred in 1982 or 1983. A Chicago police sergeant named Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit in 2006 that recounted the confession. It was being used in court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Starved Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Gibson stated that he and his partner were called to Rush Luke's St. Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient right. who said he wanted to clear his conscience. Yes. Yes. Conscience. Yes. So, all right. The affidavit said the woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that when she was younger, she'd been with her friends at a state park when something happened. What? The woman then told Gibson that she was at the park in, in Utica and things got out of hand. Multiple victims were killed and they dragged the bodies. She, a woman did this? Gibson said the woman's daughters cut the interview short, shouting that their mother was out of her mind and ordering the police from the room. Ah, oh, shit. 
In the affidavit, Gibson did not provide the exact date of the interview or the woman's name, but said he passed the information along to a detective. The affidavit did not address whether or not there was any follow-up or why the confession was not presented until 2006. What? The alleged The alleged confession was not allowed into the court hearings, although new DNA tests were ordered. However, they did not clear Chester of anything because the samples had been corrupted over Chester the years. Chester is innocent, y'all. So after these temps for release failed, a clemency petition was sent to Governor Rod Blagojevich. 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 But that was denied in June 2007. So that to this day, Chester Weger continues to maintain he was framed for the murders. I think he was. I agree with that. And Blagojevich, remember his hair? But both of the deputies, until the day each of them died, insisted that Weger had confessed. Ah. They firmly believed that he had committed the murders and had no. been per the perpetrator of one of the most heinous acts in the history of Starve Rock. Now, this dude needs to get out of jail and, and enjoy the last year of his life. Well, remember, the twine came from the kitchen. Yeah. And he was a dishwasher. Yeah, but we got to find out what that lady knows about this. Well, she died. It was a deathbed confession. I know, but we didn't bring her back for the life. Bring her back to Maybe life. Maybe she worked in the kitchen, too. Maybe. I don't know how. But how could a lady uh, do that? Add up. He is a little, like you said, he's a little guy. Those three ladies could overpower his ass. But not in the 1960s. Women wouldn't fight a man. Like, they would be, they would, they would be, like, scared and stuff, I think. I don't it think it would be, be like now. They would just like automatically submit because women yeah. are supposed to submit, you think? Right. But when it comes to life and death, people get in that fight or flight. Yeah, I don't know. Man, I don't know. That seems, ah, man, I want to know more about that. But you'll never know because she's dead. Yeah, she's that woman is dead. Ah, man. Yep. We should go visit this guy in prison. That's our new podcast. Visiting the, murderers, convicted in, murderers in, in prison. prison. To interview them. Like if we really cared about, sorry, if we really cared about this podcast, we would do that. You think? We'd have to go to Illinois. Let's just promise right now. If we ever like, if somebody ever is like, "Hey, we've picked up your podcast. Mm -hmm. We're gonna pay you nine million dollars a day to do this podcast and just only do podcasts." Yeah. Then we'll do that. We'll go to prison. All right, that people. sounds fine, babe. All if right. that ha if that happens, then yep. that sounds fine. Yeah. Also, we'll buy a horse. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. What um are we done? Is that the end? That's well, that's all the time we have because you took a long time. You rambled on and on. I never interrupted once. Oh my god! Uh it was real. You easy. drunk ass. What? Oh, no, I just hop slam is very strong. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, mm -hmm. American Timelines listeners. We're now into the sixties, and it's it's a it's, it's a different time. We're crazy. in a different time. A it's like, crazy. It's almost like taking a time machine. Don't you feel like? Because mm -hmm. we're in this time where everything's different. Yes. And little known fact, everything was black and white back then in 1960. Like everything in life was yeah. black and white? all life was yeah. black and white. Color didn't come until a little bit later in the 60s. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Mick Jagger brought color. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe. Um, yeah, we're we're stuck. We're in a lull at twenty five reviews. Yeah, give us we some reviews. iTunes reviews. iTunes reviews. I don't. Please. I'm not a fan of uh, Apple products, but we need iTunes reviews. Yes. Hey, yo, that helps us so much. So please take a minute and do that.
Matt Truman, let me introduce you to a little man called Chuck Berry. Yes. Who's in the bathroom. And get out of here, Chuck Berry. Matt Truman, it's time for you now. All Matt, right. Matt Truman sings this song that you're listening to right now. He's the best. <laughs> Matt Truman Eagle Trip. You're nuts. Me? Yes. I'm nuts? Yeah. Something wrong with you. Yeah, something wrong with me. Indigestion. Jesus. The wheel. When you were all alone, no watched I was a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. Said the wind so tired of hearing about the six days. One more time, I said, we're so tired of hearing about the six days. Well, make me shut my mouth. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.